good to see everybody this morning. And if I had a title for the sermon today, it would be, So What? <laughs> but the, the so is S-O-W. It's what are you sowing? So, as Aaron and David uh, were sharing this morning, we'll be looking mainly at Psalm 126. And it's talking about uh, bringing captives back from Zion, back to Zion. And I would like to begin by reading Deuteronomy chapter 30, first three verses. So as Aaron was saying, he's talking about uh, Israelites coming back from exile. Why were they in exile to start with? Why were they there? They got captured, but why? Why did they get? Why did God allow them to be captured? <laughs> they, they. It was because of their sin, their refusal to repent, and turning away from God to idols. And so the exile was actually uh, something that God planned and allowed to take place for them to go into captivity for seventy years, long time, and. Many, many people died. Uh, One whole generation, for the most part, was not allowed to come back. And so they were there as a a chastisement, a judgment from God. And so I think it's important for us to, to make sure that we understand that, that they were there because of the consequences of what they had sowed in their lives and in their country, what they had done. Um, receiving all these blessings from God, taking it for granted, and began abusing the freedoms and the benefits that God gave. And when we abuse and take for granted the benefits and the blessings, even things like freedom, then we lose them. And that's what happened to them. So, But the promise was, this is way back in Moses' day, And this was probably 700 years, 500 years before David. And Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and he's been talking about all the blessings and curses the last few chapters ahead of that. Uh, Blessings when we obey and walk with the Lord and the curses that come when we disobey and rebel. And so he says, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, And you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. So it's important uh, in verse 3 when it talks about uh, God restoring your fortunes. Literally, what it means is when God brings back your captivity, when he restores you from exile. This is going to be important because this same phrase is going to show up a couple of times here in Psalm 126. Now, Psalm 126 is is the positive aspect. This is after the exile is over. If you want to compare it to something, we could look at Psalm 137 as they're going into exile. Psalm 137 says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. 
when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? It's a good question. And notice they're asking songs of joy, songs of Zion. So Zion is associated, even the hearts and minds of the Gentiles, with praise and worship to God, songs of joy. So about 70 years later, then we have the fulfillment of the promise in Deuteronomy that if God's children would repent and turn back to him, seek him with all their heart and soul, then God would restore their fortunes, bring them back from captivity. And so that's what we have in Psalm 126. Um, These are people who have returned now. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. It's like a dream to us. Have you ever had a dream that something that you really longed for with all of your heart and you were looking forward with great anticipation, not knowing if it would ever really happen because it was just a dream? And then God in His mercy and His grace begins to fulfill that and you actually begin to experience it and live it out. Uh, It's the fulfillment. Everything I thought um, God has fulfilled and more. Well, that's the way these people were. They never thought they would be able to come back to Zion. From a human perspective, uh, that was impossible. They didn't think it would ever happen. And yet, here they were. God fulfilling those dreams, those longings of our heart. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, and here's the testimony. The nations looking on to this said, the Lord has done great things for them. God has brought them back. God has done this. This is what the Gentile pagan countries were saying. They were observing what God was doing through history, and they said God has been faithful and he's done great things. So the people of Israel who've returned add their testimony. Yes, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. So they were able to come back and sing those songs of joy again, those songs that were demanded of them in Babylon that they didn't have the heart to sing. Now because of the restoration of the heart, and because of the blessings of God, they're unable to sing those songs again. So he says in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Negev is a southern desert region south of Judah. And so the point I want to make this morning is this psalm starts off in verse 1 when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion. It's literally in turning back, in the turning of the captivity. And in verse 4, when it says, restore our fortunes, it literally means when the Lord turned the captivity of Jacob. And it's the same... uh, root word that means to repent, to change. And so he took the captivity and he changed that around. Instead of being captives, he brought liberty and freedom. And restoring the fortunes means that God was bringing them out of that bondage, out of that slavery, into the freedom of the children of God. Now this phrase, restoring to captivity, returning 
turning the captivity is used in the Old Testament about 15 times. But to get a real good example, an understanding of what it means, if we look in Psalm 85. And Psalm 85 tells us what that means. What does it mean when God turns back the captivity? What does it mean when he sets us free? What does it mean when God restores our fortune? Psalm 85 tells us. You showed favor, that's the word grace, to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You turned the captivity of Jacob. You forgave, this is what it means. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. And he puts the word selah in here. Selah means stop and think about that because this is a significant thing which God has done. He's turned to captivity, and what that means is your sins have been forgiven, and all your iniquities have been covered over. Now, we know as Christians that that means they've been atoned for by the blood of Christ. So for them, it means that God has forgiven them and canceled out their sin. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. So God himself is turning from his judgment upon them back to restoration and blessing. So God has been very faithful. So they have the prayer here in verse 4. Restore us again, O God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Restore us. Literally, turn us. They're asking God to make those changes in their hearts. God's forgiven and he is cleansed. And now they're asking that God would change them, change their hearts to where it should be instead of what they were. Uh, from a, a position of rebellion and idolatry to one of faithfulness and joy and freedom. And so he changes the desires of our hearts and then it's his good pleasure to give us the desire of our hearts. And that's what they're asking. Restore us again. Turn us again back to you, O God. Because even repentance is a gift from God, isn't it? It's God's drawing us to Him, showing us our needs so that we'll be in a position to receive from Him what only He can give. Now in verse 6, he continues, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Literally again, will you not turn and keep us alive? Will you not turn and keep us alive? Because it's only in relationship with him that we understand what true life is and what it's all about. So he says, show us your unfailing love. And grant us your salvation. That's what it means to have our fortunes restored. And that's what they're asking God to do for them. Uh, Turn us. Make those changes within us. Take away the hard heart. The rebellious attitude. The tendency to stray. And to choose what is displeasing to God. Living for ourselves instead of for the God who created us. So he says, if you restore us, it will be like streams in the desert. So 
In the southern part of Judah, uh, they have, they're called wadis. Uh, we would call them a gully. Uh, what it is is a, uh, it's a dry riverbed. It's seasonal rivers. When it rains, they're full of water. And most of the year, when it's not raining, they're dry. We know all about that here, don't we? If you want to know what he's talking about, take a look at one of our rivers. <laughs> That's what it looks like. And so what he's saying is that when God turns us and begins to restore those blessings, we're like a dry riverbed that all of a sudden has this abundance of water that comes through. And in that part of the country, when that happens, all the surrounding countryside, which is desert and desolate and dry and barren and empty, all of a sudden springs to life. There's these beautiful colors. There's an abundance of crops that's there. All it needs is water. And that's like us, isn't it? By ourselves, we are a dry and barren desert. Empty, unproductive, uh, harsh. But when the God begins to touch us and begins to pour himself into us, the desert begins to blossom, produces life, becomes fruitful and productive. So... We're in verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. So it's an interesting thing. The tears and weeping turn to laughter and joy. For the people of God, that's us, all suffering, all pain, all emptiness, all disappointment is seed. We sow it in God, and He brings a crop of joy. So there was a book written years ago. I don't. I never read it, but the, I always appreciated the title. The title was "Don't Waste Your Sorrows." And I think this is what the psalmist is trying to tell us. Everything in the past, if we give it to God, God can take it and bring good out of it, make it a productive thing, uh, working within us maturity, working within us patience and long-suffering, working within us the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace. But those things come not as an avoidance of the problems of the world, but going through those things and experiencing God's presence and God's grace. For Christians, we learn that laughter does not exclude weeping. And it's not an escape from sorrow. Pain and hardship still come, but because of the presence of Christ in our lives, there is a joy which the world cannot give, and it cannot take away, and it surely does not understand. So in the midst of severe suffering and loss and sorrow, in the midst of the tears, there can be an underlying joy which is a source of strength and a source of courage for those who are grounded in the Lord. So Jeremiah chapter 31 used to sing this uh, a few years back. 31.13 and the context is restoration. And at the end of verse 12, 
of chapter 31 of Jeremiah, they will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. So there's an acknowledgement that there is mourning and there is sorrow, that there is grieving that's taking place. But the promise is that out of that, God will make a change within that because there's a change in us and because of the hope that we have because of his presence in our lives. So for the Christian, laughter is a result of living in the midst of God's great works. So that's what Psalm 126 is talking about. The great work of God was to take his people and use them as a witness, his witness, to the rest of the world. And God is doing that. And when we are fulfilling that calling, that's when the joy comes. That's when the laughter takes place. In the book of Exodus, as God was bringing them out of Egypt, and as they crossed through the Dead Sea, through the Red Sea, and the Red Sea for the Egyptians became the Dead Sea, um, God destroyed their enemies and those who they were powerless to resist, took care of their oppressors, and delivered them with a tremendous and great freedom. Now, Exodus 15 is the Israelis' response to that. It's the song of Moses, where they are giving joy and thanks and praise to the God who had delivered them. And their hearts are filled. There's a lightning of the load because those whom they had feared and oppressed them all of those years was gone. And they were truly free. No taskmasters whipping them. No heavy burdens that they were forced to bear in the heat of the Egyptians' uh, sun. It's hot there. It's dry there. And now they're going to a promised land of plenty. Still work to do. Still battles to fight. But they're going with the gift of God. So the joy that we have is not an escape from boredom. It's not because we didn't have nothing else to do. But it's a plunging by faith. A participation in the work that God himself is doing. And he invites us to share. So we acknowledge that joy, this joy which God gives, is something which is a gift from God. It's not something we work up. And sometimes we forget. So in Galatians 5.22, when it's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, joy is one of them. So joy is a gift. It's what God gives His children. It's not what we work up. It's not that we go out and find something that's fun to do. It's not that. So they that sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. That's true, depending on what you're sowing. So here comes the question for this morning. So what? Because what we reap is directly dependent upon what we sow. Right? We don't sow one thing and reap another. It doesn't work that way. What we reap is exactly what we've sown, only multiplied, greater, more abundant. And that's whether it's positive or negative. So Paul writes to the church at Galatians in chapter 6, 
And he's writing to Christian people. And it's a warning. And we need to take it to heart. Chapter 6, I'll be reading verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God, Paul writing to the church, to Christian people. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So we made it very clear. We like to focus in on the reaping. Harvest time is a nice time. If you've planted. If you don't plant anything, what's your harvest? Nothing. So if you want to have an abundant reward, if you want to have a full reaping, then the focus needs to be on the sowing. Because if we don't sow right, we're not going to reap right. In the parable of the tares, in Matthew 13, talks about a man who planted a crop. He used good seed. He planted it in the soil. He woke up the next morning, and there were weeds. And his servants came, and I said, didn't we plant good seed? And he said, sure. We planted the best seed that was available. Where did all these weeds come from? Ah, The enemy did that. He came during the night while we slept and he sowed, planted all these weeds. And there they are. If you plant weeds, well actually you don't even have to plant them, do you? They kind of grow up all by themselves. It's what's in the soil to start with, isn't it? It's what's in our hearts to start with that produces the weeds. And then we get a little help from those who are trying to destroy us. Proverbs talks a lot about it. Uh, It talks about sowing discord or sowing strife or sowing iniquity. And there are plenty of people in our world that we come in contact with every day that that seems to be their business, is sowing discord or strife or iniquity. And we're faced with it all the time. God, however, plants good seed. And he plants that deep in our hearts. But what we plant, that's what we're going to reap. Abundant, uh, multiplied. So there is a sorrow and a weeping that does not end in joy. Because if we plant discord, then our hearts and our families and all friendships are going to be filled with discord. There are people, you know, you know, they come in and they just like to stir things up create problems. They enjoy it. It's like a a game with them. But what it does is it destroys lives, destroys relationships, builds walls between people. There are those who come in and create strife where there was none. And the thing about it is he's talking to the church. And we know that's true. Even in, there isn't a perfect church anywhere. It's like there's no perfect families anywhere. There's always those where there's contention and discord and strife. In the parable of the, of the, the, uh, the weeds, 
the servant of the farmer came and they said, well, do you want us to go and pull up all these weeds right now? And he said, no, let them grow. And when harvest time is there, you can tell the good from the bad. Because right when they're starting to grow, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the good stuff and the bad stuff. You know, they look alike. And he says, if you go through and you try to pull up all the weeds right now, you may destroy some of the good seed. And God doesn't want that. So he said, let them grow together. You'll know them by their fruits. Look in their life. What kind of spirit do they have when you're in their, in their presence? You can know. So he says, that's where we are, isn't it? We live in the, the field of, fields of the Lord, but there's weeds. We need to look around. If we're a prickly person, we might be a weed. <laughs> and there are prickly persons. I think I'm one of them. <laughs> a little prickly on the edges sometimes. So, the point is that if we sow righteousness, then that's what we reap. Hosea chapter 10. Hosea writing to the northern kingdom of Israel before they were destroyed. We can look, uh, before we go to chapter 10, we can look at chapter 8, verse 7. He talks about the, his people, people of God, northern kingdom of Israel. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head, it will produce no flower, because they're weeds. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up, now she is among the nations like a worthless thing. That's what happened in the captivity. Swallowed up by the people that they chose over God. Destroyed and persecuted by those who drew them away from the Lord. So they have sowed the wind and what they reap is a tornado. Destructive. I don't know of any tornadoes that have built things up and put things better than, it, than when it went through. I don't know any tornado that restored or gave life to anybody. All they do is tear up and destroy and kill. Hosea says, people of God in his day were like that. So in chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, he shows the contrast between them. So he says to them, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Remember, that's what Moses had said all those years earlier. If in captivity, under judgment, if we will turn to the Lord and seek him with all of our heart and all of our soul, God will cleanse and forgive and redeem and bring us back. Because his goal is not our destruction. That's an easy thing. His goal is our redemption, which is a very difficult thing. So he says it's time for us to seek the Lord. But, this is their response, you have planted wickedness, you have reaped evil, you have eaten the fruit of deception. Because you depended on your own strength 
and on your many warriors. The roar of battle will rise against your people so that all your fortresses will be devastated. So all the things that we put our security, our hope, our trust in, all the empty promises that we've been given will come to nothing and we will end up being destroyed and and captured. All the things that we thought were such a strong thing, we will see how empty and false that they really are. So he says it's time for us to seek the Lord. Job talks about the same thing. He talks about people plowing iniquity and sowing wickedness. So the good news is the promise to God's people. God saw that. He knew that this was what was taking place, that we were violent, evil, wicked thoughts and motives behind even the good things that we did. And he knew that there was going to have to take something drastic in order for that to change. So he came himself in the person of his son. And in John 12, Jesus talks about himself. The hour, starting in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it, said it, was thund- said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus says this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And he did. And he died. And the fruit that comes from his death and resurrection is new life for you and me. That's why he died. He died that we might live, that we might draw from his death that life which only he can give. And we draw that life from him and his life becomes ours. It's a resurrection life. It's a a resurrection life that can never perish, fade, or die. And he imparts that to those who walk with him. So there was a joy there because this was the purpose for which he had come. This is why Hebrews says... Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
and he's there praying for you and for me. Even on the cross, there was this underlying joy deep within his heart. He knew what he was doing and what he was accomplishing. So they that sow in tears will reap in joy. In the parables, in the New Testament, when, it, when Jesus talks about the parables of the sower, what is being sowed is God's word. And what these people, even in captivity, find is they find a new dependence upon the word of God. The temple is gone. The sacrifices are gone. The high priest is dead. None of these things. The king is gone. They have none of those things in captivity in a pagan land. But at that time, then the word of God became very precious. It was at that time that they began to collect what is later going to become the Old Testament. They began that process. And they became very much focused in upon God's word, written and as well as spoken. And they began to write these things down. Because they understood what Moses had finally said. These are not just words for you. They are your life. And in captivity, in oppression and bondage, they discovered what that meant. And in that situation, it brought life. So that's what they were sowing in tears. They were coming back to the Lord. They were seeking after Him once again. Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 4 and 5. In those days, time of restoration, at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. They will ask the way to Zion and turn their faces toward it. They will come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. And so Psalm 126 is the fulfillment of that prophecy. They're going forth weeping, seeking after God, bearing the seed of God's word that has been planted deep within their hearts. And as they're sowing, because when they get back to Jerusalem, it is desolate. There's not one stone left on another when they get to Jerusalem. It's leveled to the ground. Remember the promises of God, and they come together, seeking after Him, and they rebuilt from the ground up. Sowing that seed of God's, the word of God's promises, and seeing it fulfilled. Participating in the fulfillment of that. And as they sowed in tears, as they began to, to trust God and look to Him for His provision and His protection, and as they drew close to Him, one of the things that accomplished through the Babylonian captivity, never again did they bow down to idols to this day. Never again. That was cleansed. That was purged. They saw the futility and the emptiness of that way of life. They sowed in tears God's word, and they reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying the seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying the sheaves with him. And so that's the promise that God gives. Restore to us, turn us from our captivity into the freedom of the children of God. Let's pray. 
Father, it's for freedom that you set us free. We take to heart the words that Paul wrote to several of the churches. Don't allow yourselves to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't use your freedom as an excuse, as a cover-up for your sin. But walk in the light of the fullness of the children of God. Lord, even as your children, we pray as the children of Israel prayed, turn us, O Lord, out of the darkness into the light. Change our hearts as we seek you with all of our heart and with all of our soul. Help us to turn our backs decisively and completely against the emptiness of the idols around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So where are we today? Are we... uh...